Welcome back, nature lovers, to another episode of the Birdie Bunch Podcast. We're so excited to have you all back. We have another really exciting episode for you, so let's get into it. Welcome back, nature lovers, to another episode of the Birdie Bunch Podcast, where we talk everything conservation, education, and fascination. My name is Brittany, and today I am joined by my two friends and co-hosts. Hello, I am CJ. Hello, I am Matt. <laughs> well, hello, Matt, and hello, CJ. Hello. Uh, hello. Um. How how have y'all been doing this week? Thriving, obviously. Thriving, obviously. Um, next week's Thanksgiving. I'm feeling pretty thankful for all the yummy food coming up. This week, while also being the week of Thanksgiving, is also uh, the week after our good friend MATTV's and Victor's birthday. So happy Matt, happy Matt Valaga birthday on uh, November nineteenth, a couple days ago. So. How'd you, how was your birthday, Matt? I turned 23. You're an old man now. As the youngest I, person on the podcast, you're an old man now. I actually have a funny story about Can that. Can I no longer call you kiddo? When have you been doing that? <laughs> <laughs> roasted. What? Roasted and toasted. So actually, funny story about that, though. So recently was pinning malls with my undergraduate team and i need to get a mattress topper very badly i have a terrible box spring mattress that just is super flat and super rigid slept on my back i was hurting so i was at the i was in the building i pulled a 12-hour day pinning maws kind of nutty kind of proud of it though had a lot of cool things we had an ash sphinx it was phenomenal very cool very cool moth but so i I was hurting. Like, I slept wrong. I have a bad mattress. I was really hurting. And so every time I'd move, I was like, oh, God. And from behind me, one of my undergraduates, I just hear her go, well, Matt's making old man noises again to the person next to her. And I turned around. I was like, what the heck? To be fair, based on your outfits today, I would guess you're 72. I know. It's such a good sweater. It's a great sweater. It's a great sweater. It's so nice. It's um, so cozy. Again, just as a reminder, if you if you're on uh if you're if you were on social media last week, go wish Matt Valga a happy birthday if you missed it, because we love Matt Valga here at the Birdie Bunch Podcast. It's just, he is in Victor. Just a couple of days ago, so don't forget it. I guess well, hold on, Thanksgiving just a few days. Oh my gosh. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. That's crazy. What is what is what is your favorite? What are both of y'all's favorite things on the the thanksgiving table okay so this is this is wow not even a hard question not even a hard question my favorite thing used to be a good thanksgiving ham i was always a big fan of a thanksgiving ham i know britney's not a big fan of pork uh, satan but satan my current favorite thing is stuffing what like dressing big fan how do you stuff a ham no no, 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 no. it's like stuffed turkey but like but like ham no, I know, but how do you stuff the ham? You don't. It's just like in a pan. That's why it's like dressing. I you, really. I mean, okay, no. so but if, at Thanksgiving, we would always have a turkey and a ham. So I would eat both. 
And you preferred the ham over the turkey? And I, I, I think I like Thanksgiving turkey more as a leftover than an actual on the day. Okay. You know what? I <laughs> actually, yeah. Yeah. There's something about that point. Yes. The juices just hit different. There's like, something about Black better. Friday, like that day after like that thanks, just hits. Okay, so a Thanksgiving hard. sandwich on Black Friday. Mm. Chef's freaking kiss. Mm. Yes. I'm actually. I'm gonna be honest because my, my my favorite thing is mashed potatoes and gravy. That's a good. I one. love our mashed potatoes recipe because we throw some sour cream in that bad boy. Oh, sour cream. <laughs> Very good. But I will also say honorable mention goes to we do turkey and a duck every year. Wow. I love duck. I love duck because I like oh dark gosh. meat. So yeah, dark meat is okay, facts. Dark dark meat's factually better. It upsets I don't me. like it. What? Oh Brittany, we do we have to remove you as a coast? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Satan. Oh my god. Satan. <laughs> I've never had duck, so I won't. I won't comment. I can't well, say. No, I feel like, like you, would, you would not like duck. Then. No, if you don't like dark meat, you would not like duck. I don't. Duck is we, like. I don't even eat chicken thighs. Like I only oh, eat chicken breast. It's the best piece of the chicken. Well, yes, it's the best piece of the chicken. No, I yeah no. I've only we we only eat chicken breasts. Disgusting. I okay. So when it comes to fried chicken, my favorite is still the thigh. However, I usually go for the breast just because I want the bigger piece. Um, I wonder how much of this will stay in the podcast. I'm Let very curious. I'm hoping <laughs> most of it. This has been good. Well, it's been a solid ten minutes of an introduction, so I don't think all of it. <laughs> I don't know. I could see it being like you know, if we have a shorter round table, we could keep the stuff about the bak lasagna in. I'm not, I'm not keeping that in. I will keep this in just because they're confused. Sorry, nature lover. No, um, not the bak lasagna. Brittany, I'm gonna, Brittany, I was going to say, I'm going to wrap this on up. Take us into our first segment. We've, we've been here for a while. Um, well, with talking about all of the baklava lasagna, we're going to go ahead and um, go into our next uh, segment, the creature feature. It's bak lasagna, not baklava lasagna. <laughs> you know it's what? Bak lasagna. <laughs> I have the grounds to. <laughs> This week's creature feature is a pretty hard one to spot. This cool cat lives in the temperate forests of Russia and China, eluding human contact high in the trees. This week, we are featuring the Amur leopard. It is named after the Amur River that divides its home range. The Amur leopard has adapted to live in its cold, harsh climate, developing a thick coat and paler fur that allows it to stay warm and blend into those icy forests. Despite how well these cats can survive in the wild, they are no match to humans. They rose to fame because of their beautiful coats, and because of this, it has had a catastrophic impact on their population size. People have began poaching them in large amounts in search for their charismatic fur, their stardom only caused the problem to get worse, making pe more people want to capture the cat. It's thought that at one point there were only 35 wild Amur leopards left. While publicity towards the Amur leopard initially caused its demise, it is now 
helping to actually save the cat. The public is becoming more aware of their fight and they're getting the protection the protected forest regions that they are so desperately needing. The media and human appeal can be a double-edged sword, though, when it comes to conservation. And we'll continue to kind of unpack that a little bit further on. But for now, let's see what cool nature things uh, we have spotted in the news this week. So my tournament this week comes from sciencealert.com and it's titled for the first time a rhythm universal to humans has been found in a primate so human beings appear to have an almost innate sense of rhythm across cultures we fashioned different varieties of percussive instruments to use in an array of social contexts while the body itself is also used as a drum through hitting stomping dancing and vocalizing almost everything is a drum Everything's a drum. Everything's a drum. Everything's a drum. Everything's a drum. Our perception of rhythm appears to be closely related to our experience of time, as we're able to anticipate when the next beat will fall. And studies have investigated the limits of the human's ability to anticipate a beat, showing that if the time between beats is greater than three seconds, we start struggling to accurately place them. So what are the origins of our proclivity towards rhythm as a species? An interesting way of addressing this question is to look at rhythm and how it's expressed in other species, particularly our close primate relatives. And that's exactly what a recent study published in Current Biology did. Basically, they were looking for musical features in other species, and that allowed them to build an evolutionary tree of musical traits. And it helped them understand how rhythm capacities originated and evolved in humans. Previously, the categorical rhythms of Previously, categorical rhythms like 1-1 and 1-2 had been identified in birdsong. However, to further understand the development of rhythmic perception in humans, the researchers turned to seeing mammals as a promising group of species to look at, and in no part due to their close genetic proximity to humans. One such group of singing mammals are the Indri, a species of lever known for their relatively large frames and striking black and white coats. Over the course of 12 years, researchers recorded songs from 20 injury groups, which consisted of 39 individuals. The researchers extracted temporal features of the injury songs by analyzing intervals of notes and their ratios. They found that these notes matched two rhythmic categories, 1-1, one, one, similar to the pace of a metronome, and 1-2, a fundamentally similar integer ratio. Basically, this proves direct evidence for one musical universal categorical rhythms. And the fact that they found it in another primate is really, really fascinating. This ability might have convergently evolved ugh, among singing species, such as songbirds, injuries, and humans, as in songbirds, isynchrony and rhythmic categories found in injuries might facilitate a song coordination, processing, and potentially learning. So it's really interesting and fascinating to discuss the cognitive mechanisms that support such things like rhythmic categories in injuries and humans. And I thought this was a fun musical current event. Thank you for sharing that beautifully musical current event. We're going to go ahead and go from music to virgin births. So, um, ah, yes, a seamless transition. <laughs> ah, yes. A seamless transition. 
<laughs> Very good, Matthew. Very good. <laughs> what a brilliant joke. We are having fun this week, folks. We are having so much fun. Oh, okay. So the article title reads, Two California Condors Had Virgin Births, Researchers Say. And it says, A new study describes the two cases of, par of parthenogenesis in which birds lay viable eggs without breeding. And so... The titles, I feel like a little misleading because it's not that they've never bred in their entire life. They have bred at some point, but it hasn't been recent. And so um, the article, throughout the article, it talks about how rare of a chance this basically was. So the baby chicks, their actual dads um, were both... Um, condors that had already been dead they had died um uh one had died in 2003 and the other one had died in 2017 and so it had been a while um for both of these condors and usually condors are monogamous um but in this case um both chicks were homeozygous for their mother's genetics at the 21 marking points along their genetic code when they were trying to figure out who had fathered these two chicks, the condors that were around these two female birds, were none of them were a match. And so they had finally found them and they had actually both died, the one in the 2003 and the other one in 2017, which is really cool. And it's a really crazy experience. There was another case of this in Finches a while ago, but a lot of people were kind of wondering, is this is this a way to save a species from extinction and it's not really the most likely way of being able to do that while this is this is such a rare thing to have happened in in these birds that the the chances of it happening again are not very likely but it is still really cool the chicks are still doing really well and it's just real it's really great for uh condor conservation because now we have two more condors out there in the world but it's just kind of crazy and, and cool and nature finds a way you're implying that a group composed entirely of female animals will breed no i'm i'm simply saying that life uh finds a way yeah and i mean on top of that you know talking about viability conservation wise correct me if i'm wrong because i missed that whole entire current event because my wi-fi crapped itself but if I'm not mistaken, um, parthenogenesis, you know, since it's completely viable without the fertilization of a sperm, theoretically, it's just, I don't want to say it's a clone, but it does not have any mixing yeah. of genes and alleles that pop up from another. It's basically a clone. Yep. Yeah. There's a bunch of lizards and insects that do the exact same thing through parth parthenogenesis. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the problem that arises with that is that when you have species doing that, that like don't normally do that, you accrue a lot of potentially bad genes and alleles, which is the exact opposite of what you want when you're trying to preserve, um, especially the genetic diversity of a population. But that said, that's very cool. And right now the numbers are important. The numbers are really important. Like it couldn't have come at a better time. 
because condors, what can you say about condors? Anyways, going on to birds, right? So as of recording, right? So this is, you know, a little, a little while ago, but as of recording, the tallies are in, the election cycle is over, the votes are in, and New Zealand has officially voted for their yearly bird of the year. Now, before I reveal who the bird of the year this year is, Brittany and CJ, do any of y'all have any guesses? For the New Zealand bird of the year? Brittany, do you have any guesses? For the New Zealand bird of the year? Kiwi. Mm-hmm. Kiwi's a great no, guess. No, it's not the Kiwi. The Kiwi has one in the past. If I were to pick my favorite New Zealand bird, um, it would probably be the Kia. Oh, I love Kias. So cool. Kia Soul? Yeah, it's the Kia Soul. It's my favorite New Zealand bird. Well, there's a lot of really cool birds in New Zealand, a lot of which who get a lot of attention for this Bird of the Year contest. Bird of the is, Year. Yes, you're right. Yeah, the Bird of the Year contest, which the whole point is to kind of raise conservation awareness. For birds. And these, these votes go insane. Last year, we did a current event on it, and there was a scandal. There was... There was fraudulent write-ins written in that voted and skewed the votes in one direction that they found out and corrected like this is a really highly anticipated vote people get really hype about it they have campaign teams and everything they have merch if you'd like to go look for it now i will say the merch is kind of expensive because it's 20 dollars shipping because it's from new zealand but if you got that if if you're a nature lover from new zealand yeah yeah anyways it's a highly contested, you know, but highly controversial vote. And this year was not steeped without controversy because the winner of this year's New Zealand Bird of the Year was none other than not the Arctic Skua, not the Kiwi, not the Kia, not any birds like the Stitch Bird or the Black Petrel or anything. No saddlebacks. It was not the little penguin. <laughs> was the long-tailed bat what but not bird mm-hmm. but not bird apparently about a week Matt, before matt but yeah. not bird <laughs> anyway matt tell us more about this bat so this year about a week let's see how it brings it back let's see how it brings it back (laughs) so this year about a week before the voting opened up for new zealand's bird of the year they were already steeped with controversy again because all of a sudden those who were running the program realized that on the list of who could be voted for appeared a being with wings and things but curiously without feathers and this was the long-tailed bat now a lot of people were really surprised and this vote is no stranger to controversy, so it kind of went the same year everywhere every year goes. There was heated debates, heated exchanges. There was heavy campaigning in both sides. There was a shirt with the design and a slogan that said seabirds, not tree birds, referring to bats. But the bat stayed on. Not only did the bat stay on, the bat won. And the bat not only won, the bat absolutely sh- on the competition the next runner-up the runner-up to that vote got over three 
thousand votes less than the long-tailed bat. So not only did the bat win, the bat absolutely annihilated, presumably due to the novelty, right? If you have a bird of the year vote and a mammal pops up on it, I love birds, but even I would thrive for the chaos that ensued. And the bat popped up because conservation-wise, there are only two native terrestrial mammals to the island of New Zealand. Both of them are species of bats, the short-tailed bat and the long-tailed bat. Now, this isn't including anything that's been transported like rats or, you know, cats or anything that's considered invasive or feral or anything of that sort. Those are the two native mammals to New Zealand. And they're also facing huge, huge conservation issues. And because they're bats, they kind of fly under the radar a little bit, under the cover of night, if you will. I know, a little spooky. That was like a month ago, but a little spooky. Because these species tend to fly under the radar, they determined it important enough, and admittedly funny enough, to put the bat on the playbill, let the chaos ensue. Of course, there was controversy. Some people said, heck no, what is a bat doing on there? That thing produces milk. It has fur. This is not, not my bird of the year. But it won. And conservation, as usual, in New Zealand will be better because of it. I will be honest, New Zealand conservation is some of the best in the world. And you can tell because of this kind of passion and vigor behind the creatures that call New Zealand home from New Zealanders. It's those kind of things that make conservation important. They make it relevant. And so that, my friends, is the New Zealand Bird of the Year introducing the long-tailed bat. <laughs> All right. Thank you both so much for those awesome current events. And thank you so much, Matt, for sharing that mammal of the year, bird of the year. That's New absolutely Zealand. batty, Matthew. Absolutely batty. Oh, that was good. Um, but with that, I think we can head on over to our main topic. So today, folks, we're going to kind of switch things up and talk um, and have kind of a different different type of platform set up to this whole conversation. But we are going to talk about something that really affects all of us. And it's something that we're a part of. We're on a social media platform. So today we're going to be talking about how media influence and helps and and perceives and helps us perceive um, conservation topics and and how we kind of perceive different aspects of conservation and, and different things like that. So um, we're gonna kind of talk about two big things today. And with um, the new Netflix release that's coming out, I think it is no better way to start off this conversation and talking about documentaries and specifically talking a little bit today about the Tiger King. Um, because Tiger King 2 is coming out, um, and we all had a very um, interesting and uh, and harsh view on the I'm first upset. Tiger King. Yeah. 
and we can talk we're going to talk a lot more about what made makes us upset about Tiger King specifically and and documentaries like this um as well um another really good one that I can think of that that does this is Blackfish are you say good one but like like a good yeah. representation of what what I'm talking sure. about not okay, a makes... good not a yeah. good documentary yeah that makes more sense but a good uh representation good good of example. example yeah of what i'm what we're gonna kind of talk about um and how these types of media outlets are very heavily one-sided to the conversation and it's a very interesting take and so we're gonna kind of start off i'm gonna talk a little bit i think first about just tiger king um, cause that is fresh in everybody's brain and is about to have another one, but we're just going to kind of talk about perception, I think at first and, and Tiger King very much for those people who might not be in the science community gave am ammunition to the side that zoos are bad, right? Because Tiger King that like their whole thing, they got to use that, that phrase, that, that word zoo. And they became a representation of what people now get to think zookeepers are, a representation of what they think zoos are. And 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 for everybody that's potentially not in for in our field, like not everybody knows that that's not what a representation of a good zoo is. And so, while Tiger King, for a lot of people, became very entertaining, there's there's a risk in it being so harmful to the way that zoos are perceived and conservation then kind of takes a hit as well. Yeah. I think the first, first thought that I had when, when I saw what our topic was going to be today in terms of media's impact on conservation was a lot of, about a lot of these documentaries that are, you know, taking place in settings that maybe aren't the most conservation forward, but still present a very conservation heavy message. So with Tiger King, it was talked a lot about like animal trafficking, talked a lot about the basically forced breeding of exotic wildlife for the exotic pet trade. And these roadside zoos that are being advertised as zoos where people can get these close-up experiences and then potentially end up getting hurt at those as well. And, you know, you see those in the Tiger King documentary. It's, I haven't watched the second season, whatever it is. I've only watched the first one. I don't even know if it's out yet. But I do know that that is, uh, it made a big splash last year towards the beginning of the pandemic because that's everybody was in watching stuff. And, you know, these documentaries and th they, they really shed a light on the side of the conservation community that us as conservationists really try to avoid talking about, but the everyday person mostly sees as what we do, which is a very interesting, uh, you know, center point in that Venn diagram, right? Like what the people think we do versus what we actually do. So I just thought that was very, very fascinating. I think the thing that upset me a lot about Tiger King and my brief watch through, I couldn't, first of all, all right, aside from The Bachelorette, I can't do drama. There's something about The Bachelorette being so highly manufactured that I almost feel like it's not drama anymore to where I can watch it. But with Tiger King, I think the biggest problem that I had with it was it goes and runs around with this claim of a zoo. 
and never really seeks to actually understand the implication of what a zoo is. Because what Joe Exotic and what 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 the hell is her name? Carol? Carol Baskin. Carol Baskin. Carol Baskins. What they were running was not a zoo. It was a menagerie, to be completely honest. A menagerie. Zoos are what came from menageries. Menageries were when you went way, 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 way back in history. And exotics used to be kept just for like entertainment collections. Like, so you have some monarch who has like, oh, I have a llama and a penguin and that kind of crap. That was a menagerie. It was a personal collection that really the only sought to achieve status. It was a signifier of wealth, of the upper class of 1%, and it was kind of a way of showing your status monetarily in society. That's what Joe Exotic and Carol Baskins were running, because what they were running was an operation that was purely predicated upon status, of desire to be something set aside from the rest of the general public, right? Zoos, as far as they are concerned, have a lot of stringent rules that they have to follow, as well as a lot of procedures that go into the broader context of conservation. The SSP is a great, great example. It's the reason why when you go to a zoo and all of a sudden your favorite okapi is missing, that's why. It's because they are preserving genetic diversity in an arc sort of style. And that's just one of the many implications upon what happens behind the scenes in zoos. In zoos. Not menageries. In zoos. Menagerie is just a personal collection. That is exactly what Joe Exotic, what Carabaskins kept. And the reason that those two were feuding, a lot of which comes into... The status basis of it. Because zoos don't feud. First of all, how many times... I'm going to ask. How many times have both of you been to a city and had more than one major zoo? Um, Chicago? That's a suburb, technically. I was going to say what what Scott or... Or Shed uh, and Lincoln Park. Most big cities have an aquarium and a zoo. Like St. Louis does. Right. Jordan, I don't know. Atlanta. I guess I wasn't I wasn't counting aquarium, I think. <laughs> I do understand the point. But even then, they're providing two different things, right? An aquarium is largely aquatics That's true. That's based. True. Yeah. Versus absolutely. a zoo being largely terrestrial based. Obviously, you get some aquarium capturing and stuff like that. But for the most part, you don't have two or three major zoos, major names popping up in the same general clustered area. There's not a lot of competition within cities for zoos. They're not competing. This isn't a I'm better than you kind of thing. And even when you do find them pop up in the same city, there's never smear campaigns. No. They're never working together. Yeah. Exactly. There's collaboration because there is a network of zoos. It is a collaborative effort because they're working towards conservation. The feud between Carol Baskins and Joe Exotic only proves that menagerie-esque basis of what they were doing. They only cared about who looked better. And mm-hmm. one of them died because of it, by the way. That's pretty weird. 
not one of them, but someone else died. There was uh, a there, there the implications of murder. But yeah. that's another problem I have with that, where you throw around this term and then you throw in a bunch of drama and then you associate the term zoo with drama, even mm -hmm. though it's a largely scientific exploration. I always say that Carol Baskin and Joe Exotic are different sides of the exact same coin. Ten thousand percent. Yeah. They are Joe Exotic is this big personality who treats both his employees and his animals like garbage. And Carol Baskin does the same thing, but she has a different type of personality. And so they're the exact same. They're just different sides of the exact same coin. And it it's frustrating and it's infuriating because I, re I remember the comments on my social, my personal social media, on my Facebook pages and things. And it was a whole conversation that people were having about Tiger King. And this is why I don't go to zoos and blah, blah, blah. Yep. And banned all zoos. They should be shut down. And this is what, this is the backlash that we got from two crazies that got a, a platform. And it's that platform that is really important when we're talking about moving forward and conservation. Um, and I, I think it's why I'm going to kind of switch over to talking about just the opposite of what the Tiger King did and talk about the Bronx Zoo show that's on Animal Planet. Is it just called the zoo? I think it's called just called the zoo. It's called the zoo. Yeah. Um, and they and I think that it is something that is so important. I think it's an amazing that Bronx Zoo opened up to do this because I feel like a lot of misinformation comes from people watching things like Tiger King and not realizing all of the good and all of the work that zoos do. And so by the, the show, the zoo bringing that, um, showing what the Bronx Zoo does and showing all of its conservation efforts, I think that helps combat it. I just would like to see more of it because we have so many examples of things like the Tiger King. Yeah, from a business perspective, I think a lot of times I'd, it's upsetting because it comes down to audience, right? And perceived audience. And the, the, the market audience of the zoo, even though it's phenomenal, or the problem is it doesn't have the same reach because it airs on Animal Planet. And anyone who's watching the zoo, it contributes to their perception of it. But if they're watching that, they probably already had that same perception. Whereas Tiger King, these big market things that are just to a general-based audience that are so widely pushed in just a societal narrative, right? We saw Tiger King pop up in our news, right? I would watch it. There was a whole week where I saw Tiger King in the general morning news. And I thought, why the heck is this in the news? You can just go freaking watch it. And the broad media sensationalism that comes from shows like that, that focus on the drama, only contributes to the fact that you have these really important stories being told that are being suppressed by narratives that are made more so for getting general views and general clicks versus actually serving a purpose and that's i think the biggest problem in, with it right now i i think one thing that this conversation really reminds me of in terms of discussing some of these roadside facilities like 
you know, what I don't even know the name of Carol Baskin's facility or Joe Exotic's facility. I don't know their names, but they're realistically just like roadside attractions, whether they're, whether they're called a zoo or a sanctuary, whatever they're called. There's no necessary accreditation process required. There's no conservation status being achieved there. A animal care is not the priority at these facilities. And I think one thing that was discussed many moons ago here on the Birdie Bunch podcast was actually the first episode Brittany Basletta was ever on. And Brittany talked about the history of zoos, right? And how they started off as menageries, rich people going to these foreign countries and getting animals to put in their backyards. And now today they've evolved into zoos, right? Basically the late 90s, they've evolved into zoos where, you know, more work goes into it. But the label really has been applied to things that maybe are not things that do, do apply, right? So the next evolution in, in terms of this, this flow chart of, uh, you know, animal care facilities is conservation centers. And it's facilities that where animal care is at the key of what they do, right? Animal care and education. Those are the key points of their job. Those are not the key points at, at Joe Exotic's facility. They're not the key points at Carol Baskin's facility. Their point is to come and see a tiger, right? It's, it's these conservation yep. centers that really keep what we do alive. It's what gave us all our start in terms of being so passionate and being so excited about wildlife because we had the opportunity to learn and grow. Mm -hmm. Facilities like that are really just there to take advantage of one, the people, and two, the animals. Absolutely. Kind of going along with that and how and how zoos and things are perceived, I kind of want to talk a little bit about social media because we get a lot. I know on my feed, um, and I'm talking social media, I, I'm going to kind of group social media together. So it's TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all of them. There's all of them. And I know that I get a lot of things that pop up on my Facebook that are like a chimpanzee in some funny looking outfit or I might TikTok sometimes on my For You page. It'll be facilities that have a platform on there that are intentionally harming their animals and 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 calling themselves a zoo. They're like and people who have their own collection, these menageries are going on there and 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 doing that representation. And social media nowadays is where a lot of information that's gonna get or is gonna be per, like received and perceived is gonna happen on social media. We're now in a generation that uses social media as one, their main source of entertainment and two, their main source of, of news. Of, of things that are going on in the world around us. And so I think it's a, an important thing to talk about there too, because we're, we're, we're not in this spot anymore where, where necessarily a lot of people are even going to roadside zoos or seeing them all on these social media platforms. And uh, we saw a big increase in, in that in during the pandemic and, and, and people not being able to go to places and not being able to go to actual conservation centers. They're getting all of that from these menageries that are posting on social media. And it's, it's, it's very interesting because then it just keeps getting cycled through, right? So they see the video, then they can talk about it. And the people that are seeing the videos, 
a lot of those perceptions, a lot of those people have the same perception. So it just keeps getting reiterated down in the comments. And it, it's, it's a very hard cycle to break. And I'd be interested to kind of hear both of y'all's take on social media. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't want to shout out any specific f facilities because one, I don't want to say anything bad about them. But two, I don't want to uh, give them any more light than they already have. Absolutely. So, you know, some of these facilities, while they, you know, do house and care for animals, again, it's basically, it's again, come and see this alligator, come and see this giant snake. And it's not really about the animal care or the education. For these facilities, <laughs> it's funny because some of them even sell animals, right? They might sell alligator eggs. They might sell, you know, uh, you know, baby snakes that hatch. And it's wild that facilities that we're calling zoos are allowed to do that. Because you think about Joe Exotic, same thing happened in Tiger King. He was selling these baby tigers. The baby tigers that he had that were being ripped away from their mothers or being taken to a hotel rooms for drug parties. Like these are real things that have happened on these documentaries through social media, we're seeing all of this and all of it spreads so much faster. Now that's one of the dangers of social media is that good or bad information spreads rapidly and perceptions on it are never fully clear mm -hmm. because the education is not provided. It's just the content that's provided. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. So, you know, social media is, is uh, incredibly dangerous. That's why part of what we do on our social media, we'll plug it later, is you know, infographics, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's all about providing information. You know, I think we do some fun stuff on our social media, but it's not about misinformation. It's about information. Mm -hmm. It's not about, look at this cool thing. It's about, here's a cool thing, but also let's learn about it. Here's a cool thing to learn, not just this is cool. Exactly. Absolutely. And, which by the way, you can find us at the Bird Watch Podcast on Instagram and all social medias. Um, <laughs> but social media is a very fascinating uh, case study in terms of how we perceive conservation and how we perceive education in terms of these mm -hmm. informal topics. Absolutely. I think it's why it's so important, the things that we're doing here on the Pretty Bunch podcast, because we have all of these things that we have to try to combat. And I think it's something special that the three of us have done literally a, a big chunk of our lives yeah. um, and have been able to bond over. And I think it's something special that we're able to now try to bring out to others. Mm -hmm. And I'm really grateful to both of you to be able to have this platform because it is so special. And I think being able to see some of the platforms that are used on social media that don't represent our field very well, we see that impact that it has. And I think it's why it's so special that I know that we can make that impact in the exact opposite way. I think another part of this conversation that I only relatively recently came privy to, because I guess it just never dawned on me, but there's, you know, there's a lot of money to be made in social media as yeah. you know, when we're talking about YouTube or Instagram or especially YouTube, if we're being honest. Right. Yeah. And the, the 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 thing that I always come back to, and I saw this in the world of sports broadcasting, but it reigns true in this as well, in all of this stuff, is that the people who are making money off of posts on Instagram or posts on Facebook or news stories that are linked to those things or making money off of videos on YouTube or anything like that, they're not being paid 
for being right. They're not being paid for the quality of the product that goes out. They're only being paid for the quantity consumed. Whether it's money off of ad revenue from YouTube, it doesn't matter what they posted on YouTube. If you watched it, and we, we're all guilty of hate watching stuff. We all do no. it. Mm-hmm. We all do. I hate watch The Bachelorette, which is, you know, we <laughs> all hate watch things. But when we do that, even if the product is garbage, if it's some anti-science crap or anything like that, they still get the money. It, it, you don't even have to believe in what you're talking about. If you use a headline so inflammatory that someone's like, what the heck, and click on it, that's money. And the problem is, is that our generation does equate social media with news and information a lot of time. And when it's used by people who the goal is to put out information, that's a force for good. But on the other side of that comes the people who are just using it to make money. And the only thing that's going to make money is sensationalism or things that make you go, what the heck? And you're so confused by it that you click on it. And that's money. And people believe that because we believe the things we see in social media now. The the internet's a scary place, guys. It's not, it's not, the, the internet is not kind. It's very cruel. And it is so hard to navigate. Because people would take advantage of it every single day. And that's just yeah. one of the huge ways that people do. Yep. I mean, we're straying away a little bit from, I think, the point of the conversation. But you're absolutely right there, Matt. I think one thing my dad used to say was money was the root of all evil, right? That people's mm-hmm. desire for money outweighs any social need, any community need. And we see that specifically in conservation. You know, we see we had a current event just a couple months ago about staff at Columbus Zoo who misused resources, right? Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it's this greed. It's this need for power. It's this need for resources, I guess, that drive people. And on one end, conservation facilities, like a lot of these high, highly respected institutions, fortunately, they're going to cost more money to get into because they don't make money. Most of them are nonprofit institutions. Some are for profit, which is, you know, totally fine. But a large majority, especially here in the United States, are mm-hmm. non-for-profits. They're not making a profit off your money. They just need to run. That's why their cost mm-hmm. is so high. A lot of these, you know, roadside zoos and facilities, zoos in quotes there, um, they're either free or they're not as expensive. And they're in these communities where people are never going to get to see that stuff. And I think the flip side of this conversation is the same flip side of the conversation when we're talking about things like bushmeat. It's mm-hmm. the consumption of it, like people who like, that's it, I need to do this. It's for the same goal, right? Parents take their kids to these facilities because they want them to see a tiger, mm-hmm. right? When are they going to get a chance to do that? And the opportunity to get so close and learn and, you know, Maybe they're not learning as much, but they're they're getting that same spark that we got in a different way. And I, not to not to you know say these facilities are doing good, but because obviously shame on people like Joe Exotic. But the impacts that it has in the community is really big. 
and it's really interesting to see the local people's reaction, like local communities' reaction when some of these facilities get shut down or they get bought out or something like that, because to them, they don't see it as a negative. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing that I really love to bring light to this conversation. No, I really appreciate that because it's. I think it's something that is often forgotten, and I think it's it's something that I see. I guess in 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 the field of in being in zoos and aquariums directly. Yeah. That I think it's why it's so important when I'm looking at how we're educating that we do mm-hmm. community outreaches. Yeah, um, right. community engagement is such a key part of. Mm-hmm. education facilities right we all come from these facilities and some of us even still work at these facilities where conservation and animal care as well as education are key parts of what we do and that's really what separates these conservation centers from these roadside zoos absolutely i think it's important i think i i've been enjoying a lot more seeing these conservation center centers these well-respected zoos these accredited zoos who are going and having really successful social media pages because just like it's really fascinating yeah because like like we talked about like the the comment that you mentioned earlier cj was you know on social media things spread very fast good or bad they spread fast and so <laughs> to mm-hmm. be, so to be able to have some good out there yeah. being able to be spread i think is fantastic and I want to see so much more of it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know if Matt knows some of these people too, but Brittany and I for sure know people who actively run media pages for some of these facilities that are doing such awesome work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And some of these people have really changed the game in terms of how conservation is presented on things like TikTok, on things like Instagram. Absolutely. And maybe we can get some of these guests on someday. I think it'd be really yes. great. Yes. But, you know, social media's impact over conservation is something that I feel like is not talked about because we literally know nothing. Look, looking at your insights page on like Instagram or like seeing your insights on TikTok, it's not an accurate representation of what you're actually doing. Mm-hmm. And it, it, cause somebody could just download it and re-upload it. Right. Mm-hmm. It's still your content <laughs> and you were, it's all your work that you're doing. That's still being shared, still being spread. So it's amazing stuff that literally cannot be calculated to the extent that it needs to be because it has such a massive impact that we don't even understand yet because it's so new and so fresh. Yep. I think, I think, and I think that's it right there. That's, that's a key in social media is that you can't, there's no, there's no way of being able to actually track, but it just shows how much of an impact good and bad. I'm going to reiterate that, that social media can, can have. I think the thing is you can really measure a negative impact because there's repercussions that come from it. Yep. That's it's it right very there. hard to measure a positive impact. I think Absolutely. that's the tough thing about education as a whole, right? Because we all remember, you know, our, our terrible teachers and some of our terrible experiences that we've had in school or whatever. But we might have just like, you know. Uh, all of the positive things, all of the things that we've learned, you probably have like one special moment that you remember with a teacher, I hope. But along the way, you've learned a lot and you probably don't even remember learning it. And that's exactly Mm -hmm. how it works. These informal learning facilities like zoos, like museums, like aquariums, 
like the planetarium, like whatever you have nearby, because these facilities, their goal is to teach you and you don't even know you're learning. That's the beauty of informal education is you are so actively engaged. Oh my God, I'm yes. so passionate. You're so actively engaged. Mm -hmm. that you don't even know you're learning. I think it's one of, I've had a mentor in the past where we've had these conversations and talking about how to get communities engaged and literally it could be not even having a full-blown PowerPoint presentation. It can literally be coloring next to an animal. And those, like, people are going to, and kids are going to pick up on something and they're going to remember those things. And these are the types of things that facilities are doing. And I, I like, I can think of numerous children centers inside of these conservation centers, inside of these amazing accredited zoos, and and it's special and it's don't like i mean correct me if if i'm wrong it's one of the biggest sparks the three of us have had oh, it's yeah. you know and I think that's you know i think that's really what it's about mm -hmm. you know creating those connect because like like i mentioned very briefly those connections can happen at some of these facilities that you know were highlighted in things like tiger king that were highlighted in things like blackfish which blackfish is a whole different fish can of worms um it's a whole but, different fish. <laughs> a whole different fish. Uh, a whole different fish. Um, but you know, these facilities that were highlighted in things like Tiger King, they can still do, you know, make an impact on local communities, but their impact on conservation is incredibly harmful. Yes. Right. And their impact on the view of conservation also incredibly harmful. Yes. Yeah. I think that with kind of all of that being said, I think it's I'm going to kind of bring it back to I, I think it's why it's so important that we have that we have our platform Yay. because we are part we are a part of this conversation now we are a part of a media platform that is going out there and teaching and educating people and so I want to thank both of you for helping create this platform and what can I say we're a media conglomerate the pretty much ink that's who we are um, I'm putting the music underneath of that. Yeah. Nice. Um, um, one thing I want to mention too is some of the other platforms who we know and partner with who are also doing amazing stuff, right? So I, I think a big one who we know and, and love who I haven't talked to in too long is our friend Krista at Birding Tools. Another podcast that's doing such great, great stuff in terms of educating people about conservation and going outdoors and enjoying birding. Um, any other suggestions from you guys? Birdability. I just want to say birdability. Yeah. Birdability. Birdability. They are huge on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter. They're really um, big on Facebook, actually. They are. They, while they are a nonprofit as a whole and they do have like a whole mission, their goal is to spread inclusivity in nature, mm -hmm. which is absolutely incredible. Um, any other suggestions for uh, organizations doing good? Um, I I know locally, one thing that's exciting is a lot of like local rehab centers. You have a lot of yeah. great like conservation being done from even social media presences on like forest preserves and like yep. a bunch of different Almost small all town. the local forest preserves in my, in, in my area at least are on social media. Oh my God. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The Kane County, you know, I ended up doing a video for Kane County and that goes on social media, you know, especially with the pandemic. A lot of these places that so far were only in person have now switched and are keeping the switch because it works. Mm -hmm. It's making an impact. And that's what it's about. I Huge think impact. 
I think a couple that I am thinking of, they're more on TikTok yep. than than um than on on some of like the Facebooks and things, but um Ocean Connections is a really great one. Exactly who I was thinking of, Brittany. Yes. <laughs> um they have always have really fun content. Um, another TikToker that um, I really think has a really great platform is I'm gonna mispronounce it, so I'm just gonna spell it out. It's at M N D is in dog I A Y E underscore ninety seven. And the reason why I am gonna plug this TikToker is because he has done some really fantastic videos, and if he actually gets any information wrong. He goes back and makes another video about it to correct himself. And I think that's something that's super important when we're talking about social media is being able to be held accountable when nobody's perfect and you might say something wrong and that's totally okay. But I really like the fact that he goes back and corrects it. And he really does give fantastic information. But I think that's another really great social media source to get some really great conservation education. But I think one more really important social media that we should be plugging is the Birdie Bunch podcast. Wow. Wow. Transition. Seamless transition. Um, and so you can find uh, the Birdie. That. I'm really glad nobody caught that. I now have caught it. Thank you for that. <laughs> I was reading about football. What happened? I, I just echoed what you said earlier in the podcast with seamless transition. That was that was the joke. Nice. Um, but you can find us um, at, in a couple of different places. You can find us at our website at thebirdiebunchpodcast.com or you can find us on Instagram at thebirdiebunchpodcast. Um, but individually, you can find us um, uh, on our own social media pages because we all share really great conservation content there too. So you uh, you can find me at the Brittany underscore bunch, T-H-E-B-R-I-T-T-A-N-Y underscore B-U-N-C-H. You can find me at Matt Valga. That is M-A-T-T-V is in Victor, A-L-I-G-A and living my life. I yeah. love to hear it. I love to see it. Yeah, hopefully. I know I don't engage as much as I should, um, but life's a busy when you start three new projects in one week. And I would like to share with you all what's going on. So there will be a Matt Valga update. Recap. Maybe we can get another science with Matt soon. I would like to. I really would like to. You can find me on the social media at cj.greco. That's cj.greco. And maybe I'll post a picture from Thanksgiving this week. Who's to say? Oh yeah, your ham. No, it's not. I'm not gonna have a ham this year. I'm not gonna have ham. I'm gonna have a turkey. Oh, you're right. It's the seven fish. No, that's of which that's none Christmas. are fish. It's Christmas. <laughs> baklava is a fish. Your baklava lasagna. <laughs> I gotta go. I gotta go. <laughs> Brittany, how can it's people just... support us? Brittany, how can people support us? Um, there's actually. I'm gl glad you asked, CJ, because there's a couple of different ways. Um, if you uh would like to get some behind the scenes look at the craziness and the chaos that is our recordings um you can actually become one of our patreons and support us there there's a couple of different tiers that get you different things but one of those allows you 
to uh, get a shout out here on the podcast. So thanks, Gabe Andrele, for being our Patreon. We we love and appreciate you. And um, if you like some of our things, and you uh, you should check us out on our website, and you can hit that support button. And we have tons of really cool merch. We come we come out with new merch um, fairly fairly often. And get those cozy sweaters as we're getting get getting a little bit chillier, a little nippier outside. But if you can't support us financially, that is totally cool. The biggest way that you can help support us is actually by just telling a friend, telling a coworker, tell the random guy on the street. And if you really like our content and you would like to re- leave us a review, if you leave us a five star review, we will actually read it out loud here on the podcast and we actually do have a new uh a new review so matt take it away so this review is by inherently flawed gems gems i appreciate you for your inherent flaws we all aren't perfect so appreciate you for all your inherent flaws titled fun facts fun format and fun ellipsis because i don't know how to read the rest of that title and it was too long for apple podcast to display but says folks this one has got it all news puns facts banter birds what more could a listener want if what you want is a fun enjoyable and understandable podcast that you can listen to around your parents without feeling a strange guilt and a need to apologize for language, despite the fact that you're 24 years old. That seems like one of those inherent flaws, Gems, but I appreciate you for it. And you know what swear words are. Give these folks a listen. Thank you so much, Inherently Flawed Gems. We appreciate it. Love you and all your flaws. You are one gem of a human being. Thanks, Maddie. Why am I like this? (laughs) Is there anything else that I'm missing that I haven't plugged? Okay. Tell someone. No, I already did it. We did that. Oh, I'm telling you both. Listen to the Little Burry Boy podcast. Hey, hey, <laughs> hey, Brittany, I actually have a, a question for you. Yes. Mm-hmm. Are you looking for a new podcast recommendation? Sure, yeah. Yeah, I actually have a really great podcast I was listening to the other day. It's called the Birdie Bunch Podcast. Oh, there really? I'm going to have to check that out. Yeah, yeah. They talk everything conservation, education, fascination. How fascinating. Oh, the most fascinating. Brittany, wrap us up. Like a nice present for Thanksgiving. <laughs> it's a nice lasagna. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck lasagna. Catch you next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast. We would like to thank Sarah Dunlap for designing our logos, Elliot High for being our writing and production assistant, and Connor Whitman for being our music producer. The mission of the Birdie Bunch podcast is to inspire an inclusive community for conservation by using education to promote fascination.